This week on a lively experiment, looming budgetary issues in the General Assembly have legislative leaders and the governor at odds. And the Rhode Island Veterans Home has some tough decisions to make. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week, Ian Donis, political reporter for The Public's Radio, Brown University political science professor Wendy Schiller, URI political science professor Maureen Moakley, and Dave Lehman, corporate communications consultant and former television news anchor. Hello everyone, we appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. There are financial storm clouds on the horizon for the state in 2020 in what seems to have become a familiar refrain every year. But the governor and the legislative leaders do not appear to be on the same page on how to solve those problems or even what they are. Uh, Ian, you have spoken with all of them this week. I know your show with the governor is gonna run next week. It's a recurring theme, but it seems a little bit more dark this year. Jim, in the immortal words of Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. We have to actually go back to the administration of Lincoln Almond more than 16 years ago, the last time when a new legislative session began without a fresh deficit. Obviously, the U.S. economy has been growing, growing and expanding for a very long time. Nonetheless, Rodan is looking at a deficit of about $200 million for the next fiscal year, starting July 1st. And the governor, the speaker, and the Senate president all speak about this in slightly different ways. The governor told me she's more concerned about the money being spent in good ways in the budget. If it's being spent on education and economic investment, it's less worries. The deficit is less worrisome in her view. The speaker, and uh, who's obviously having a bit of a fractious relationship with the governor these days, talks about getting greater efficiency for the taxpayers out of the budget. So I think you'll see more strife between the House and the governor on the budget. But it is worrisome when the U.S. economy is doing so well and there's no end in sight for Rhode Island deficits right now. Corey? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think one thing is important to remember, 200 million is the number we always seem to be working with. And somehow or other, we seem to, you know, we seem to muddle through. And that may be what's going on now. Um, I think that the idea is that uh, the governor, and I don't think she has been there at odds as much as it was made out to be. She's given up on free tuition. It's a very, she's been very conservative about that. And there are other things where um, she's, she's given up on, she's talking about sustaining the car tax, in other words, that kind of thing. So they're in, are in agreement in a lot of ways. And I don't think she's presented a very aggressive spending agenda. The only thing I think she's talked about, which I think makes sense, is in terms of the crisis in affordable housing, she's talking about fees. But she's also talked about raising revenue, like we need more taxes. And that's where the speaker draws the line in terms of saying, we don't have a revenue problem, we have a spending issue. Yeah, we do have a spending issue. We have a budget of, of $10, $10 billion plus for a state that is relatively small. I use the statistic a lot. Nebraska is about the same population size as we are. They have half the budget we do, half the budget. So um, you have to say to yourself, there's got to be places to save money in a $10 billion plus budget. So, and also, you can't raise tax. In a good economy, we have 3.5% you know, uh, unemployment in Rhode Island, the most recent numbers. It's a very good economy. This is 
as good as it's going to get. So, so what about when it goes south, right? Right. Well, well, that's right. But also if you have a budget that is in deficit, when it's as good as it's going to get in terms of getting people working and paying income taxes and other kinds of taxes, you've got to look to the, the spending side to get that back in balance. Yeah, I, oh, sorry. No, I, I'm going to make the same point. There have been some predictions that, uh, that there's going to be a severe downturn uh, right before the next uh, presidential election. And, uh, you know, the old saying is that Rhode Island is usually the first one into a recession and we're the last ones to get out of it. And if happy days are here again uh, in terms of our own economy here, you have to wonder if this $200 million budget continues to, uh, deficit continues to be a problem for us. They don't find the, the, the patches for that. What is going to happen if we do have this downturn? And what if it becomes a severe downturn? That's a concern that I have when you're talking about spending. I think, I think the mantra here that we don't have a revenue problem, we have a spending problem, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think, I think this state historically has had a difficult time saying no. And I think that's why we continue to be in this $200 million deficit situation, anywhere from $150 to, to $250 million. You know, if you play these shows back over the years on Lively mm -hmm. Experiment, how many times have we talked about $150 to $200 million deficit? And, and you're right. They, we do somehow or another manage to get out of it, but sometimes it's because of a big settlement, you know, uh, you know a cigarette uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, windfall that we might get from a a previous lawsuit or whatever, but I don't see that on the horizon. I think there are going to have to be some hard choices. And to Wendy's point about how we compare with some other states, the overall spending in Rhode Island has grown significantly over the last 10 or so years. I mean, it's the budget, you know, not that long ago was maybe $6 billion, $7 billion. Now we're up to $10 billion. Governor Raimondo points to how about a third of the budget is Medicaid spending. Right. She says it's good that a very large percentage, almost all Rhode Islanders, have health care coverage, that is good, but, you know, it costs... It comes a at a cost. It comes at a cost. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I don't think the comparisons with Nebraska are fair because this is an urban state. We have a huge immigrant population, and we do do a good job, relatively speaking, in terms of social services and getting people that need the help to get it. And also, as far... I mean, it's wonderful that we have only 3% of the population that doesn't have health insurance in, in terms of children. So you have to understand that we do spend a lot. I do also agree with Dave, though. I think where the money, some money can be saved is in the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. We have such a large bureaucracy, and I think the speaker is right there. And I think the legislature have ta has taken this tack. They usually either just approve a budget or not. And Abney, Representative Abney, who's the finance chair, has said he's going to go through and start looking at individual budgets, what their, you know, what their margins are, well, they should and have, do something uh, about Marie, that. You don't have to be a financial Nostradamus. Ian and I were talking about this two or three years ago. They approved the governor's budget, which was up another two or two fifty, and then they added on, without her request, another two hundred on top of that. The budget went up almost more than half a billion dollars, and so you can't dial any of that back, right? Once that's baked in, nobody's going to be taking that stuff away. It's difficult because a lot of the budget is for fixed costs, and there is a relatively small percentage that is discretionary spending, but that, you know, reinforces the question, if that's the case, how do you get a handle on this? And no one really seems to have a good answer at this point. And state, and so two things on this, so, so state employment, you know, the bureaucracy is also a big part of Rhode Island employment. So these are jobs. 
jobs. These are uh, good jobs that people sustain families. So you want to be careful about cutting too much of that. And the second thing is for Medicaid, it's not just going to children. I think we can all agree this is like investing in the future. Nursing home care under Medicaid, we have a, you know we have a fairly large percentage of our population that is elderly, and we have a pretty big ticket item in terms of nursing home care under Medicaid because Medicaid pays for that if you if you spend down your assets. So that costs the state a lot of money. And uh, states like New York are changing that. And I think the governor wants to do this too. More home care services, more in outpatient services, so people don't have to go into nursing homes, which are the biggest cost expenditure. And I think that's a big a big ticket item that has to be looked at yeah, as well. I agree. That model is changing. I mean, yeah. all over. People are, are, we know that nursing homes are not the answer in home care. And that's something. So you can save there. You can yeah. save that kind of money. You could go through the bureaucracy, I think, and I'm sure you could pull out a significant amount of savings in that, in terms of looking carefully at the budget. But again, one of the great things about Rhode Island is we do have a great safety net. I don't think it's extravagant. I think we have an immigrant population that's very expensive, and it's our obligation to bring them into the mainstream, and that's the choices we have to live with. Well, the whole financial, you don't, again, you don't have to be a financial expert to realize, Dave, with the, with the, um, the one-time scoops. You can only do that so much, and then you're back in that hole again, so the governor can't go to that well no. this year. Well, I, I think, uh, touching on your point, uh, I was going to make this point earlier, that we are among the oldest populated state on a per capita basis. We've always been, I mean, going back, you know, decades, we've always had a disproportionately large uh, elderly population. With, with that comes in a great deal of health expenditure because these people need to be taken care of. We are not a wealthy state. So, uh, and we are also a state of immigrants. And we've always been a state of immigrants, but we are more so now. When you look at, and we'll be talking about Providence schools before long here, but when you look at the Providence schools, uh, you know, 83 uh, percent, I think, are, are basically uh, immigrant or uh, they're not uh, they're, they're, they're not what you would say uh, more traditional as you might find in other states. Now, we've chosen to do, you know, to, to take this on. But we are probably I make this point a lot, but we are probably one of the few states that really shouldn't be able to take this on because we don't have the, the resources. We're, we're not a Texas. We're not a California. I would say California, but California's got their own set of problems. Uh, they've got a huge deficit. But I, I think we have taken on these responsibilities, but we are a small state, probably least able to really afford some of this. All right. Senate President uh, Ruggiero basically had a shot across the bow saying to the governor, if you're thinking about marijuana, which they wrote into this year's budget, right? That never legalizing marijuana. Uh, don't think about that. And I think the speaker is also on board on that. So good idea to pump yeah, the brakes I'm not on that? A big, I'm not a big fan of, you know, expanding lotteries or even um, uh, legalizing marijuana for the revenue. If you think that, uh, you know, decriminalizing, which you've already done, but legalizing marijuana for compassionate use, for things that people need, for <coughs> medical conditions, this all makes sense to me. Doing it to make money is just something I'm very uncomfortable with. I don't want the state government to be doing that to make money. Same with, same with gambling, same with the lottery. So I, I understand the position, and I'm not sure, and we've seen some problems, Colin, 
Colorado's having some problems. California's having some problems. Even Massachusetts starting to have some problems. This is not a panacea that works really well for everybody. So again, you, even no matter what you do to make more money, if you continue to increase how much money you spend, you will never catch up. But the thing is, in terms of that, it's not about the money, but there is the money to be realized. And it's a tricky situation. I mean, I don't understand it because the problems are real. They have to be worked out, but they, they're doing it in Massachusetts. Our neighbors, in, you know, we have a small New England constituency. People are going over the border. But it is about the money in Massachusetts it's because, it's money because they priced it so high with the taxes. People are like, I don't want to wait in line. I'll go to my dealer, right? right. It's not well, yeah, working and, the way they thought. Right? And people are going over the border because if you're in Providence and out and about, the aroma of marijuana is much more present than it ever was. And Colorado's top marijuana regulator came to the state house a few years ago. He said, if you're going to legalize it, don't do it for the money. I don't know uh, whether it is good policy or not. I mean, I think there are you know, there are costs associated with increased use and, and revenue associated with it. But Speaker Mattiello told me very conspicuously that he doesn't support uh, legalizing it, particularly for revenue purposes. Well, I, it, it is about the money. And, and if, you, if you look, uh, I've seen some numbers that have said that uh, <coughs> the reason why you're seeing so many people now interested in the mar marijuana business is it is extraordinarily profitable. Now, maybe down the road, if you weed in some of the uh, social costs, that may be offset. But there's a... Did you say weave in or yeah. weed in? Weed in. <laughs> no, weave in. Yeah, weave in. <laughs> Good point. Uh, and so I, it is about the money. Uh, we've gone to sports betting. It's about the money. And one thing we didn't touch about in our previous conversation here is that our gambling revenue isn't so hot these days. Twin River is struggling a little bit, at least by, by their, their normal standards. You know, gambling is our third largest source of revenue for the state. So this is really important. I, I don't know about the social cost of, 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 uh, of pot legislation. Uh, I think medical marijuana is certainly a good thing because it is a, a solution for some people with severe health problems, and that does work. And we've been ahead of the game on that. I mean, we, yeah, we Rhode have. Island was ahead of the game on that, and that's a great thing for people who really need it for that use. But, but once you get into that, I mean, legalization is not far off. And my point is that it's all around us. Yeah. <laughs> and even though they've decriminalized it, people are going across the border, or you'll go mm -hmm. to your dealer. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's more than just the money it, it's also about uh, realizing a reality out there that we seem to be, we're not going there, and I'm not sure about that. Maureen, what does your dealer think about the prices in, uh, in Rhode Island? <laughs> well, my dealer is saying uh, they're going up. Yeah, you so say dealer he can to give you a better deal, right? <laughs> if you say dealer to her, she thinks you're talking about an automobile. A car <laughs> dealership. Um, but on the budget, one last thing about the budget. Sure. The Trump administration has now been issuing regulations. People aren't paying all that much attention, but they should, certainly on food stamps, although they're, they're rolling those back because of controversy. And they're just implementing... Um, uh, the, they're trying to, a new version of the food stamp and also Medicaid. And we saw in Kentucky, the Republican governor was replaced by a Democratic governor who rolled back workfare, meaning you had to work for Medicaid. But these, if Trump is reelected, these changes to Medicaid in particular will happen. And then the state will have to cut back on or make more requirements for a social safety net. And that's going to be another choice. Do you supplement that or do you actually do make those cuts? So if Trump's reelected, those, those things are really going to matter a lot in the coming years.
engineers. Okay. Our friend and colleague Tim White over at Channel 12 had, has had a series of stories about troubles at the veterans' home. You remember they built this beautiful facility. Now they're having a problem balancing the budget for a variety of reasons. And this has kind of been death by a thousand paper cuts, Ian. I know you've been following this also in Tim's great work. I don't know where this goes, but it seems pretty basic that if you're going to build a larger facility, it's going to take more to maintain it. But there seems to be more structural issues there. Yeah, right? absolutely. And kudos also to Eli Sherman, another reporter at Channel 12, right. who's been working with Tim on this. They've been, they deserve credit for shining a light on this. I mean, I see this in the context of how, unfortunately, veterans are, have often gotten shoddy treatment in this country. You can go back to World War I when veterans marched on Washington because they weren't getting their bonuses after the war, how veterans from Vietnam were treated in a shabby fashion after coming back to the U.S. And I think there can be agreement, regardless of where people on the, on the political spectrum, that veterans deserve good treatment. And some of these cuts at the veterans' home seem very short-sighted and poorly made. So hopefully the attention on this will lead to some better management there. These people deserve good care. But so, so I think what's important about the story, though, is that there is a federal VA system for health care that's funded at the federal level, and veterans are entitled to that. And Rhode Island has had, for many years, one of the top-ranked or near-the-top-ranked VA centers. So there is the health care part of that. There's no guarantee for veterans of nursing home care. So this is a decision that the state made, and it's called the Veterans Home, but I think it's confusing to a lot of people in the state because it's a nursing home. For veterans. For veterans, but the basic cost of that is typically probably paid by Medicaid or the veteran's family with some subsidy from the state to operate it. But there isn't, there aren't veterans nursing homes all across the country that are publicly funded. So I think that's the real kind of um, no man's land. This is no one of those choices that Rhode Island has exactly. made. We're going to do it for our veterans. And it's it a no man's a land. Yeah, it comes at a cost, right? Yeah. And, I, and the thing is, <clears throat> I think you could look at this and say, all right, there are $3 million in the hole. Maybe there are some structural things that you could do. Like there's an arts... Um, contract that they have with AS220 for $70,000. Maybe you look at that. You don't look at the lunches. I mean, we've chosen to do this. This is something that makes this place wonderful, that their families can go. They're not having filet mignon. They're having lunch and things like that. So I think we, we have chosen to do this, and I don't think it's that big of an expense. $3 million is not that much money when you look at the whole picture. So I think there are ways that we can make choices to go ahead and do it, but also look at the budget and see if there are some consolidations to do that. The other thing they talked about, which uh, I don't know, the, the reporting sounded sort of like this was a terrible thing to do, but if a veteran dies without a, without a will, it's like Medicare, they take the rest of their resources if they've been taking care of them. I don't see what's inhumane about that. So uh, I think there's things to work this through. I think it's unfortunate because the, it's a big PR problem, but also uh, it's solvable when you're talking about $3 million. You want the final word on that? Well, yeah, but the, the strange thing about this is I think this goes back to the whole idea of planning. If you're going to double the size of, of, your, of your veteran's home, there's a huge cost that comes with that. The fact that there appears to be some surprise at the maintenance of this double-sized uh, facility now, which is beautiful, it's only two years old, that they didn't figure out that it was going to cost that much more money to maintain it. Well, if you double your house size, yeah, if you build an extension onto your house, you know you're going to have to furnish it, you're going to have to heat it, you're going to have to have water in it, plumbing, and so forth. 
it seems to me part of this goes back to the very beginning, and that's the planning of it. Where was the planning on this? Where, where were people saying, okay, if we do this, this is going to be the result? And also, the smart people say, what are the unintended results? Right. You and put in a little those. buffer on the budget, right. too. Right. Okay, uh, you know what, let's do outrageous, because uh, was there an impeachment this week? We'll have to get to that in a minute. <laughs> Wendy, do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? Yeah, I mean, there's always so many things to be uh, <laughs> upset about. Um, Guns or the east side of Providence road condition, um, right? No, actually, kudos to DPW, the state, um, uh, DPW, and the city. I mean, if you go to the east side, Gano Street right now, they've done a beautiful job with Indy Point Park. They expanded it. A lot of people use it, families in particular in this summer, particularly family, low-income families, all sorts of people mingle. They've done a really nice job there, so that's a kudo. My outrage is that now both, both Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are messing with the Constitution. You know, you're going to go impeach somebody. You send those articles of impeachment to the Senate. You can't control what the Senate's going to do with them. McConnell ought to have a trial. It ought to be a reasonably length trial, like the Clinton impeachment. But Pelosi needs to, she's done this now. She has to send those articles over. So nobody should mess with the, with the Constitution to the extent that you undermine the entire system. All right, Dave, what do you have? Well, I'm going to piggyback on what she's saying, because I sent you a note earlier this week or last week. I said, is anybody not noticing that Mitch McConnell is coordinating with the White House on a trial in the U.S. Senate for the for the president's impeachment? I mean, that would be like a, a defense attorney working ex parte with the judge on how they're going to run the trial. I mean, that is just absolutely outrageous. And, and I said to you, is anybody paying attention to that? And finally, two or three days ago, somebody woke up and said, wait a minute, these guys, there's a collusion going on here. I, I mean, that was really outrageous. I'll give you a quick uh, kudo. I was pleased to see that the U.S. Senate is signing off on the robocall measure that will, that oh. will tighten up on this. Yes. I said, if I was going to run for Congress or for national office, I'd be the robo candidate because that upsets and angers everybody yeah. with getting call after call a day. So anyway, uh, good for them. It's going to go to the president's desk. He's going to sign it. I hope it makes a difference. Ian, what do you have? Here. <laughs> My outrage is Clint Eastwood and his new movie, Richard Jewell. Jewell unfairly became the object of suspicion about the Olympic bombing in Atlanta back in the 90s totally fine to make a movie about that. There should never be a rush to judgment in that kind of situation. But Eastwood's movie created a fictitious storyline about a female reporter for the Atlantic, Atlanta Journal-Constitution trading sex for information. This is a very popular trope in Hollywood. There are a lot of TV shows and movies where this fictitious storyline is introduced that somehow women reporters can't get information without using their bodies. This is a slander on female reporters. We have a, lo a lot of great ones here in Rodan, and that's an outrage. Okay. Marie, what do you have? Mine is, uh, it's sort of, anyway, mine has to do with the <coughs> lack of consensus in terms of the hospital system. And my outrage is, and Scott McKay had pointed this out, um, they make, the presidents make millions of dollars. The hospital, lifespans in debt, the kind of contentious uh, attitude about the CEO of uh, women and infants care in New England. This is outrageous. I mean, they make all this money, and it's really unfortunate that we can't somehow force them to come to some sort of a, a, a accommodation for a statewide system. And they're not thinking about that, uh, and they're not, they're not willing to go that way. And I think the governor has to step in again and do something more forceful. Okay. The, um, 
the, uh, the impeachment became official this week. Probably no surprise there. You have alluded to this about, uh, about sending the articles over. Um, give me a roadmap on where you think this is going to go. Well, I, I was taken aback. Uh, people, had, particularly people very much on the left, very progressive people, were saying, no, hold the articles of impeachment until we know that McConnell will have a trial. And then also, maybe we hold them till 2020 is over the election. I mean, maybe we just hold it over the president's head the whole time. Thinking that's not what the founders intended. The founders did not mean that impeachment should be just ouster. You have two separate processes for a reason. You can impeach, which is signal sending. You cross the line. You cross the boundary. You're abusing power. Stop. We're not going to kick you out, but just stop doing what you're doing. And the Senate can then say it was so serious you have to leave, or, yeah, just stop what you're doing. That's the intent of this. That's pretty obvious from what the founders wrote and the limited amount of description in the Constitution for impeachment. So follow the process. Lindsey Lindsey Graham, who I don't usually agree with, he said, he said, yeah, they're trying to get leverage for something that we don't want to even deal with to begin with. What's, what's the, the leverage well, here? I'll be really quick. The, Trump wants a long trial. He wants a show trial. Mm-hmm. He wants to orchestrate it. He wants people to get up there. Maybe they say the truth. Maybe they lie. Who knows? But he wants a trial. And he should be able to defend himself in the Senate. He doesn't actually go there, but he should have, be able to have counsel like Bill Clinton did. So he wants a longer trial. The Senate Republicans do not because they're afraid of what might come out in there. And they think it'll hurt their chances of keeping the Senate. So there's a, a problem there. Is a problem, but I do think it's going to be resolved. I mean, they're not going to wait until 2020. I mean, I think this is a little leveraging, a little playing around the margins, and fairly soon, within a week or so, we'll see these things transpire. Well, I mean, can... I think they're playing for the public. I think it's not in their I- either interests, in terms of the Democrats or the Republicans. I mean, the thing is, they're going to have a long trial. If they have a long trial, they want to call witnesses. But on the other hand, Hunter Biden's going to have to s- step up to the plate. They'll call... No, a- not necessarily. That's the whole point. I mean, we actually, they're talking about Hunter Biden, but Hunter Biden has nothing to do. This is a charge against the president for abusing power. There's no reason for Hunter Biden to. to uh, I know, would argue that that will, tr- that will come up. I, I will argue that. I don't that think they're going to be successful up. in that. One thing that's really striking to me is how there's been a huge change in public <laughs> attitudes on foreign interference in U.S. elections in 30 years. When Reagan ran for re election in 84, he had a very successful ad about the so called bear in the woods, the Russian bear. And, you know, I know Americans don't pay that much attention to foreign news by and large, but the founders were very concerned about foreign interference in U.S. elections. So that is a serious issue. I I absolutely agree with you. That was what the founders were most concerned with. And it's really stunning to me that this is sort of taken as, well, maybe a little, uh, you know, Uh, step on uh, the wrong side, doing something wrong. I mean, this is a big deal, and I think it matters. Uh, This whole thing is somewhat chaotic. I I actually uh, probably disagree with you, Wendy. I think it's very smart for uh, Nancy Pelosi to hold this uh, back, at least for for a short period of time, because what's going to happen is this is going to go to the Senate. There's going to be a short trial. They want to keep it to two weeks. And ultimately, the president is going to be acquitted. He's going to walk around for the, for the better part of uh, the time going up to November saying, see, there was nothing to this. You know, and a lot of the people at home don't realize that the House of Representatives dominated by the Democrats. You knew where this was going. And you know where it's going in the Senate because it's dominated by the, by the Republicans. And they're, they're not breaking ranks with, with the president. So I think Pelosi is doing this to essentially just try to, uh, in, in some effort or another, to try to get 
either some testimony that they would love to have uh, before the Senate so that they can, frankly, get a fuller picture on what this whole thing is about. There's only going to be a half a picture on this. The, the, the Republicans <coughs> and, 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 and the president are claiming, you know, there, there, there's no firsthand information. Well, there has been some. That's not that's actually not true. There is firsthand information. But the president is, is not allowing anybody with firsthand knowledge to talk to the investigators or to talk to the Senate. I think that's a very legitimate issue. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think you're right. You're both making really important parts about, points about it. I think the problem is that the, the aid to Ukraine went through. You know, it's the same thing with the Mueller investigation. The Russians, did he collude? Well, they were incompetent about their collusion, so they didn't actually successfully collude with the Russians. And in fact, in this case, Trump upheld the aid. He extorted, tried to extort from the Ukrainian president. He was unsuccessful. He failed to get the prosecution that he wanted, and he let go of the aid. The aid went through. So Americans are saying, what's the big deal? It actually happened. He didn't stop national security. He delayed it a little bit. The, That's the Achilles heel but of the case. But, but the other thing is, as Dave said, you, if you get to the point where you knew Mike Pompeo, know about it, knew yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. they colluded about doing it, and just because it didn't go through, they got caught. I think it matters. They got caught. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Special programming note, do not miss one of my favorite shows of the year. Next week, as this same panel, will be back here with a, re a year in review, predictions, and only in Rhode Island moments. So come back and join us next week. Hope you had a great Christmas and uh, Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, whatever you're celebrating this year. We'll be back here next week as a lively experiment continues. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.